0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode begins with some good news and some feats of strength. We also have a little update about the nutrition app that we're building, and we've got a link to a survey. The survey allows you to tell us exactly what you're looking for in a nutrition app, and it gives you an opportunity to get on our list of potential beta testers. After that, we've got a research roundup segment where we talk about capsaicin supplementation for performance, and ketogenic diets for hypertrophy. We've got a coach's corner segment where we talk about how to navigate vacations and time away from the gym. We've got a Q&A segment that covers a ton of different topics. And we finally get an objective answer to the question, is Greg actually able to squat? The result may surprise you. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I am doing well. Uh, We've got a lot of stuff to get to today, so let's dive right in and start with some good news. I'm going to kick things off here. Uh, It's summertime in the United States, uh, and that means people are rushing to the beaches, and they might even get the idea to go into the ocean, but... As we all know, there's a lot of bad stuff happening in the ocean. Uh, There are stingrays, jellyfish, sharks, uh, and of course there are whales. So you might be a little bit nervous about getting into the ocean, but this week I have some good news for swimmers. There is uh, one threat in the ocean that might be perceived as being worse than it really is. Uh, So I saw a news story. And basically this guy, uh, he was a lobster diver, a lobster fisherman, uh, over in Massachusetts. And, uh, he unfortunately found himself in the whale uh, or in the mouth of a whale. Um, a whale came by a big humpback whale and decided to, uh, you know, essentially swallow him and Hey, he made it out he's doing just fine so if you were worried about getting into the ocean thinking you know if a whale swallows me i'm in trouble you might actually be totally fine so good news for the swimmers out there and honestly just a really crazy story and there were like several eyewitnesses who were just like yeah i saw the whale come and uh you know chomp on that guy and uh and then he came out pretty crazy
1: yeah you know i i don't necessarily know that that's news though uh that phenomenon was already very well documented in the documentary film Pinocchio. Um, so I, I I thought we already had a cultural understanding that that was a thing.
0: Well, it's always good to get uh, replication. And so we, we have even more evidence that <laughs> uh, from a totally independent research group here that if you get swallowed by a whale, it might be okay. Might not be a big deal. Good deal.
1: All right. Uh, so I have couple pieces of good news. One, uh, there is apparently a new type of surgical procedure that can be performed in utero to, uh, reduce the risk of or prevent, uh, paralysis related to spina, spina bifida in infants. Um, so spina bifida is a condition where, um, Basically, the the neural tube doesn't form correctly. uh, And so, like, nerve tissue can be exposed to the intrauterine environment instead of being enclosed and protected. uh, And that can um, often result in paralysis. And uh, so, apparently, this is is wild to me. Um, There's a new procedure where they can go in and, uh, like perform surgery on a fetus, like 20 weeks, uh, like a a 20-week gestated fetus in utero to uh, correct some of those spinal tube abnormalities to prevent uh, spina bifida-associated paralysis. I think they started doing this surgery in 2020. Um, So I, I think there are just articles starting to come out About it now. Um, You know, now that a lot of those babies have been born and they've been alive for a little bit, so you can make sure, like, ah, there don't seem to be any major complications. Um, But yeah, yeah, very, very cool stuff. Um, You love to see it.
0: So I I have a kind of, I I, I know more about fetal development than I should. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I was working on my PhD, uh my phd is in human movement science right and so the department is like motor learning and uh there's a lot of concussion research uh there's a lot of physical therapy going on a lot of you know acl reconstruction research so like i was a physiology guy in this department that really wasn't physiology focused at least not like exercise physiology so when you're a PhD student, you know, sometimes you're kind of on your own and they're like, hey, you need to fill your course schedule with physiology courses. And I was like, cool, do you have any? And they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, what what should I do? And they're like, you got to find a different department. And so then you go to the medical school and you say, hey, can I take your physiology? They say, you know, you're not even a med student. Like you, you can't take our courses. So basically... Your department doesn't have the courses you need, but also no department will let you into their courses. So, like, I had one extra physiology credit that I needed to fill. And the only department I could talk into accepting me was uh, over in the nursing department. They had a physiology course that was on fetal development. And uh, so, yeah, I, I'm this stuff, I, I know it backwards and forwards, but to be honest, the only thing that I really took away from it was that having a baby is terrifying. And uh, like we, we covered teratogens uh, like things that can induce uh, what, what's the term for it. Um, You know, any kind of pathological development of the fetus, any kind of uh, developmental issue with the fetus Uh, teratogens are things like, you know, if you have a huge dose of like, I think it's vitamin A during fetal development at certain points in in the process, it can be really devastating. So a teratogen is something that basically interferes with embryonic or fetal development. But yeah, so we just talked about every possible thing that could go wrong with embryo and fetal development. And I just walked out of that thing. Like, I can't believe babies exist. Like what are the odds that it can actually go right? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but (laughs) but yeah, so
1: the, the one that always jumped out at me is like, Oh, yeah. If if you think you may have gotten pregnant, just like to be safe. And I think this is specifically related to spina bifida. I'm, I'm reaching here because I well, learned about this stuff in undergrad.
0: The neural tube forms very early. Yeah, it forms yeah.
1: very early. And I, I believe that heat can interfere with it. And so like one of the things that increases your risk of spina bifida is taking hot showers within like the first eight weeks of pregnancy. So it's like Hey, you—you you haven't even missed a period yet, but uh, you know, j- just to be safe, just don't take a hot shower. It's like, come on, everyone <laughs> takes hot showers. You yeah, know?
0: it's like, it's like whatever you do before you know you're pregnant, make sure that you don't take a hot shower, get in a hot tub, drink an alcoholic beverage, smoke, or it's like all these lists of things that like you cannot know you're pregnant yet and. There's no reason that you would avoid those things yeah, I, unless you knew you were pregnant.
1: I, I certainly can't say I I empathize with pregnant women because, you know, that's not something I will ever experience. But boy, do I have a lot of sympathy for them because every time I learn something new about pregnancy or things leading up to pregnancy, I'm just like, damn dog, that sucks. <laughs>
0: Yeah. I, I basically, the, the moral of the story is I walked out of that course and my big takeaway was like, it's literally impossible to have <laughs> a healthy baby because there are <laughs> so many things that can go wrong and they are all so scary, but it's awesome to see these types of, uh, of advancements and procedures that can, you know, they can intervene and improve outcomes, uh, for these, you know, fetuses that have issues.
1: For sure. All right. Uh, Next, I have a bit of news that has been framed as good news that I actually think is quite ominous. Uh, So an article from Good News Network, 8 in 10 youth think gardening is cool and half would rather visit a garden center than a nightclub. Uh, Basically, they interviewed a bunch of young people aged 18 to 34, um, you know, asked them about their vibes related to gardening, and then just said, hey, would you rather visit a garden center or a nightclub and so you know they're saying 80 percent have good vibes about gardening uh half would rather go to a garden center center than a nightclub oh that's so cool like the kids are all right less party culture blah 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 i think no absolutely not because uh, if you if someone's gardening i think that's pretty pretty suspect uh as people know, this is a podcast for strong Christian values, firmly anti Dutch, firmly anti marijuana. Uh, this story doesn't have anything to do with the Dutch bit, just throwing that in there in case people forgot. Uh, but yeah, why are people gardening? 98% of the time it's to grow weed. Uh, and so, you know, if there's. You, you go back half a generation, people are like, oh you know i w- i want to change my mental state and feel something new a lot of them were doing cool club drugs like molly mdma that's that's good stuff uh you know i i don't i don't, it, it was made in a lab probably uh and and this is a pro science podcast so we're definitely like a pro party drug podcast but like weed that's that's dangerous stuff that's bad stuff that's that's why people are gardening um i i think that this bodes pretty poorly for future generations i agree <laughs> uh okay um last piece of good news the nested segment within the good news segment and that is the road to the stage segment uh cut still going well hit a new low uh as of Recording the last podcast, the smallest number that had showed up on the scale was 250. Uh, now it is 248.6. Trend weight is down about three pounds uh, since the last time we recorded. Um, and and my, uh, my small win related to this is the intervening two weeks between recording the last podcast and recording this one uh, was the crazy time of month for mass writing, which is... If I'm going to significantly deviate from my diet, <laughs> that's when I'm going to do it. Uh, and I, I stayed on the wagon, and I feel pretty good about that.
0: Sweet. And and you mentioned your trend weight that you got from our app that is still in development. You know, we're still developing and testing as we go. Um, along those lines, we do have a survey. Related to the app. Uh, do you want to give a rundown of the, the general purpose and or content of the survey?
1: Uh, sure. So uh, we are, we, we, I believe by the time this episode has come out, we will have sent this out already. Um, a, a survey basically just to ask people, you know, uh, do you track your nutrition? Have you ever, uh, what apps have you used? What have you liked and not liked about them, etc. Uh, you know, mostly just because our app is still in development. We're still in alpha, even though beta is going to start pretty soon. Um, and yeah, so we we want to make sure that it meets the needs and expectations of people who will be using it. So, you know, at at this point, <laughs> 98% of the feedback has come from us and the devs to make an app that... Serves our purposes that we really like. Um, you know, obviously, we're not going to be the only users of it forever. So, uh, you know, we we want to make sure that it's going to do the type of stuff that <laughs> that people would want it to do. So that's that's the main purpose of the survey. And it's also a uh, big announcement. It's also to get uh, an idea of who would be interested in being a beta tester. We'll probably have. Between about 100 and 150 total testers in the upcoming closed beta. So uh, yeah, if if you want to be a beta tester, um, we will be pulling from people who filled out that survey. So if that's something that that would interest you, uh, definitely check it out.
0: And very importantly, if you want to be a beta tester, uh, sending a message to us directly will not help in any way. So make sure you do the survey. That is where we're going for beta testers. We're not keeping like a running mental list of all the people who DM us.
1: Well, sending a message to me isn't going to help, but I, I do think messaging tracks will will probably increase your odds.
0: I, I promise it won't. We're going straight to the, the survey list. But if you want to fill out that survey, if you're on our email uh, list, you're probably going to get it, I think. But uh, we also have it linked in the show notes for today's episode. So, you know, in, in the bodybuilding world, I mean, I've been using tracking apps on and off since like... I don't know, 2011, maybe. And I remember there were all these bodybuilders who everybody back in the day used MyFitnessPal and everybody was super annoyed because they're like, this isn't for us. It, it doesn't have the the types of functionality that we want, you know, as, as physique athletes, bodybuilders, powerlifters, lifters in general. Uh, so there was always this frustration of like, how can you kind of make my fitness pal work for what we do, even though it's not really built with our needs in mind. And so one of the reasons we have this survey is because we want to very much make sure that this product is tailored to the people who are going to use it. So we want to know what features, what functions you want, uh, so that we can, uh, you know, design the product and, and, uh, you know, Build it accordingly. We want to make sure that it's exactly what people want. So
1: we, we want to make sure it's built different, exactly, as the kids would say.
0: Yeah. So uh, if you are interested in kind of uh, influencing the development of this product and making sure that it's got everything you want, be sure to fill out that survey. Um, all right, Greg. What about uh, what about feats of strength?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I, so I pulled out, uh, two deadlifting related feats of strength for this episode. Uh, one is Sawyer Clat, a 19 year old, which to be clear, that is a teenager, uh, teenage USAPL lifter, uh, deadlifted 363 kilos or 800 pounds in the gym. um, and I mean, 800 a, a pretty wild number regardless of context, uh, but I believe he's a 105 kilo lifter um, or, or competes in the 231 class. And if he were to put 800 on the platform, he would be only the second teenager ever to do so. I didn't realize that how few uh, 800 pound deadlifting teenagers there were. There have been so many like strong young squatters, I just assumed that there were some more just crazy deadlifters out there. Uh, But I checked open powerlifting, and uh, unless I just set the search terms wrong, I'm pretty sure the only uh, 19-year-old or younger uh, to ever pull 800 in a meet is actually Eric Lillybridge, who pulled 800 on the dot uh, and and I'm pretty sure George Lehman also pulled over 800 as a teenager, but didn't do it uh, in a meet. Uh, but anyway, apparently a very small list of uh, teenagers who've deadlifted 800 pounds, and uh, the only ones coming to mind uh, who are Eric Lillybridge and I think George Lehman, uh, both significantly larger than 231 pounds. Um, and uh, maybe some slight differences in uh, blood androgen levels as well, because uh, Sawyer Klatt is a USAPL lifter. Anyway, uh, very, very impressive stuff. Kudos to him, uh, and hopefully he will put that on the platform very soon. And then also, uh, Brandon, I assume this is either Striegel or Strigel. I'm not sure which one. I think In German grammar rules, it would be Striegel. Um, But anyway, Brandon Striegel uh, deadlifted 400 kilos or 881 pounds in the gym. Uh, He, I believe, is a 242 lifter. Um, And if he were, he's a 242 junior lifter. uh, And he is currently tied for the uh, biggest deadlift. For a 242 junior uh, with 865.3 pounds or uh, 392 and a half kilos, tied with Jamal Browner. Um, so if he were to put 400 on the platform, that would be the biggest uh, deadlift ever by a junior 242 lifter. Uh, once again, young guy. I believe he's 21 or recently turned 22. Um, so yeah very very strong young deadlifters props to them uh both both of these lifts were done in the gym but weren't done with straps so they seem like numbers that we might be seeing on the platform soon uh and I very much hope we do
0: all right good stuff so moving forward I've got a little research roundup segment uh talking about a couple nutrition topics going to talk about capsaicin supplementation. Also going to talk a little bit about ketogenic diets. Um, before I do that, we had some lingering questions related to beta alanine uh, from last episode. We, we kind of talked about, you know, different uh, delivery systems for beta alanine, like sustained release formulas and things like that. And some people asked uh, if, you know, if beta alanine would basically be relatively stable in water. Uh, I'm no chemist, but based on the few papers I saw, it looked like beta alanine should be relatively stable in water. Like I wouldn't mix it, leave it in a hot car for a month and come back to it. But, you know, like I, I had mentioned that my very lazy strategy for getting in my beta alanine and my creatine was just to put it in water in the morning and just drink it throughout the day. Based on what I saw, I didn't see anything that would suggest that's a bad plan. Now, some of the creatine will break down over the day, but, you know, if you're taking a big old scoop, you know, let's say maybe there's six or seven grams in there with your creatine monohydrate, if it's a a big heaping scoop, uh, if some of that breaks down to creatinine before you ingest it, no harm done. You're still getting plenty of creatine, uh, you know, whatever creatinine you're, you're ingesting, it's just going to come out. No big deal. So yeah, I, I still think that's probably a, a decent strategy for those who are interested. And I did have a few people message me about, you know, what do you think about really, really high dose beta alanine supplementation, you know, because we talked about how, you know, theoretically, a lot of the studies uh, to date have probably underdosed it in the sense that they haven't fully or even close to fully saturated muscle carnosine levels. And, you know, the, the the answer to that's challenging, you know, so I, I've had people who email me and say, Eric, what do you think about eating 60 bananas a day? And I'm like, I don't know. I've never seen what happens when somebody <laughs> when somebody does that. Like if you're trying like novel nutrition strategies that we don't have research for, it's hard to to really forecast exactly how that's going to go.
1: Well, and, and we only have case studies for up to 30 bananas a day, right? Do we? Uh Oh man, I, I don't know if they're still doing this, but do you remember, or did you ever come across the vegan YouTubers, Durian Ryder and Freely the Banana Girl? <laughs> no. So their whole whole big thing, and, and I'm going off of videos I saw from them when I was in college. So I, you know, maybe they're eating 40 or 50 bananas a day now, but but back then like one of their big things was 30 bananas a day um
0: is there is there a name for that for that that, like go mad is that (laughs) oh man i
1: i want to say their website was just like 30 bananas a day.com wow just vamp for a while and i'll i'll try to to pull up uh this piece of of web history
0: yeah well i'm gonna go ahead and and kind of frame the next uh thing i'm gonna talk about with capsaicin and you can you can jump in whenever you have banana related updates but like I said, the, the beta alanine, uh, those are some of the persisting or lingering questions. So I wanted to at least address those before I moved on. Now, in this research roundup, I'm going to start by talking about capsaicin. And I, I want to put a caveat here that capsaicin is one of those supplements that's kind of on my watch list. It's It's not like the WADA watch list where they're like, hey, we might ban this any day. But there's like a couple supplements that I think are intriguing and interesting, but I really can't quite give them a, a confident recommendation yet. So like betaine is one of those. I think there's some interesting literature related to betaine, but, you know, I haven't seen enough really directly applicable stuff to say like, absolutely go spend money on betaine. It's going to go great. You know, I, I'm just not there yet. Capsaicin is another one of those things. And uh, there was recently a systematic review about capsaicin that that I wanted to uh, to kind of highlight on the show here. So uh, it was a systematic review, and it kind of explored some of the uh, potential mechanisms by which capsaicin uh, supplementation might improve performance. And if you're a, a mass reader, capsaicin is not new to you. We've actually covered it twice. So Helms covered it in 2017. In the time period I call the Dark Ages, that was before I was a co-author of Mass.
1: Speaking of the Dark Ages, uh, so I'm I'm cutting back in with thirty bananas a day content. I've now done my research. Cool. And in the back, in the Dark Ages of 2014, seems to be when this whole thing peaked. Uh, when I when I googled thirty bananas a day, there were a lot of uh, Newton. I guess not news articles like human interest articles about this big fad that was, uh, that apparently peaked in 2014. I think they've moved away from the branding. I found some links on old forums from 2013, 2014 to, to the 30 bananas a day, uh, URL. Now those redirect to the frugivore diet.com. So apparently they, they've moved on from 30 bananas a day to all, all various types of fruit. Uh, which, Twenty
0: bananas and a pineapple.
1: Yeah, which I mean, in the grand scheme of things, probably probably good. <laughs> I, I assume bananas aren't nutritionally complete. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I don't think that they are like a singular food source that uh, achieves all needs for human dietary intake.
1: But yeah, they uh, it, it, that seems to have peaked around my senior year of college, and uh, yeah, they they've moved on from that.
0: Fair enough. But uh, but yeah, so like I said, capsaicin, we covered it in mass in 2017, and then again in 2019 uh, as, as more research has come out on the topic. So the thing that's interesting about capsaicin is there are some studies showing performance benefits in humans, uh, so that's always a good start. And I think the mechanisms are, are really fascinating. They're, they're really compelling. So this uh, systematic review, which is linked in the show notes, uh, they talked a little bit about the various mechanisms that could be at play. And, you know, w- without question, the, the main way that capsaicin's probably doing its thing is by binding to a receptor that is called the, uh, it's the TRPV1 receptor, which doesn't really roll off the tongue, but... Um, But that is the the main receptor that it targets. And, you know, it could have a number of effects, uh, you know, as capsaicin is ingested and and ultimately binds with that receptor. So there is some evidence to suggest that capsaicin supplementation could increase calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And so that can be a really helpful thing, Uh, you know, that calcium release in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Uh, is a critical aspect of muscle contraction, actually allowing muscles to contract and generate force. And, uh, one of the things we see with certain supplements that increase that calcium release is that they can, uh, you know, increase force of muscle contraction, especially during fatigue, you know, so during fatigue, uh, muscles start to tire out a little bit. If they can get a little bit of extra calcium release from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, in many cases that can, uh, delay that fatigue a little bit and and allow muscles to continue creating force at a high level. Uh, It could also potentially increase fatty acid oxidation, which theoretically could make more energy available for utilization. And and, uh, uh, it's possible another mechanism is it could have an analgesic effect. So it can reduce uh, pain perception a little bit, or increase pain tolerance during exercise. And that's that's one mechanism. Uh, actually there, one of the things that I find really interesting is some of the overlap mechanistically between capsaicin and caffeine. So like caffeine can affect calcium, uh, kinetics in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Uh, caffeine also, uh, c- can influence, uh, perceived pain and perceived exertion during exercise. So that's one of the reasons that I- I'm intrigued by this small, but, uh, but interesting uh, body of literature here. Um, There's also some evidence to suggest that it could help spare glycogen a little bit uh, and it could increase the release of acetylcholine uh, during exercise. So there are a number of ways by which capsaicin could theoretically be a helpful supplement when it comes to enhancing performance and theoretically delaying fatigue. Uh, Now, the uh, kind of getting to the highlights or, or the conclusion here of this particular Uh, systematic review, they identified 22 uh, relevant studies to look at. So 14 of them looked at the effects of either capsaicin capsaicin or related capsaicinoids. Uh, 14 studies looking at supplementation and how they impact uh, performance in animals. Of those 14, uh, 9 showed some benefit to performance. Uh, So not, you know, not batting a, a thousand there, but, uh, a, more than a fluke, you know, it, it's not like one of those supplements where there's one or two animal studies. So
1: if you're a baseball player, you, you'd be in Cooperstown.
0: Oh, uh, well, yeah, you, you, definitely. Yeah.
1: I, I think, I think that should be a new meta analytic technique. The, uh,
0: if, if it's over like a three thirty, uh, yeah
1: the, the, the Cooperstown barrier, you know, if it for, uh, for for ones that just go with like a uh like a vote counting approach where where you can't actually meta analyze it, just be like, Look man, if, if you're batting better than three thirty, like it's definitely good.
0: Yeah. Well that that's Which c- certainly. really interesting. wouldn't be a
1: good metric at all, but <laughs> uh I don't know. Might <laughs> Yeah, that that would actually be really stupid, but I would think it was funny.
0: Well, in this case, 9 out of 14, I mean, you're really... You have your own room in in the Baseball Hall of Fame if you're batting 9 out of 14.
1: That almost reduces to a perfect 5 out of 7.
0: Well, there you go. Um, Anyway, so yeah, there were 22 studies. Like I said, 14 were in animal models. 9 out of 14 showed some degree of benefit. Um, There were 8 studies looking at performance in humans and uh 3 demonstrated significant acute benefits for performance or for endurance performance and then uh 2 also re- reported uh acute benefits for resistance exercise performance so uh not bad you know 8 studies 3 showing uh benefits for endurance 2 showing benefits for uh resistance training performance so It it is, you know, there's a collection of interesting mechanisms that seem pretty plausible. There are some emerging uh, positive findings. So like I said, this is kind of on my list of supplements that I'm interested in, not quite ready to say that they're going to be beneficial. Something to keep in mind, of course, it's a very small body of literature. And one of the things that's common with small bodies of literature is, you know, if there's only like three or four studies on a topic in humans, a lot of times half of them or more are going to be from the same lab group they're like the first people who said hey we want to do this and so that's very much the case with capsaicin a lot of the the research comes from you know uh, the same lab group and the same kind of uh, group of collaborators which is not a bad thing but with any with any body of research you always want to see that it replicates and different lab groups, different regions, you know, different scenarios, you want to make sure that the finding is robust and generalizable across the board. Uh, So so that's where we find ourselves with capsaicin. And I think one of the things that uh, people are likely to wonder is, you know, this is interesting, I don't necessarily want to shell out on a supplement, uh, it's not a really common supplement that I can just kind of, you know, go down to the grocery store and find it next to the protein bars. So why don't I just get capsaicin or, or capsaicinoids from my food? Uh, and the, the challenge there is, you know, some of the dosing or some of the dosing guidelines, when you look at the studies that have ergogenic benefits in humans talking about one or two 12 milligram doses of usually a purified capsaicin powder. So it's a capsaicinoid. Um, The studies that have used like high dose capsaicin itself, uh, or like big doses of just like cayenne pepper or something like that, a lot of times they do report uh, pretty notable gastrointestinal discomfort. Uh, And so That's probably not what you want to do. Uh, You know, if you have a really, really, really spicy meal um, before a workout, yeah, you can probably get plenty of capsaicinoids. Uh, I I was looking into it, and uh, it it looks like average daily capsaicin intake in Europe is roughly 1.5 milligrams per day based on the resource I found. Uh, Once again, the, the ergogenic dose is like one or two 12 milligram doses Uh, so 1.5 milligrams a day is, is pretty common throughout Europe, but, uh, it looked like in India and Mexico, sometimes you, you'd find intakes in the range of 25 to 200 milligrams per day, which is, that's a lot of capsaicin. 200 milligrams is a lot.
1: That's a, that's a lot of, uh, Vindaloo chicken.
0: Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so I, I don't think, you know, I I usually like to promote getting stuff from food whenever possible. Because it's convenient, and usually you end up bringing in all sorts of other good stuff along with the active ingredient. But when it comes to capsaicin as a pre-workout supplement, it's probably not a great idea. Uh, Your mouth might be on fire, your stomach might be burning during the workout. Uh, The GI-related complications might not be might not be advisable. When when we're talking about trying to get a small performance benefit. Having an upset stomach throughout your workout is going to be a net negative. Uh, I, I would think.
1: All right, dumb dumb question. Th- this is a supplement uh, segment, which means I'm gonna have stupid questions at the end of it. okay. so uh, throughout this you've been talking about capsaicin and capsaicinoids. Uh, my my understanding of this, which I've purely derived from conversations with you, is that other capsaicinoids seem to have similar physiological effects to capsaicin, but aren't spicy, right?
0: Uh, yeah, they. I, so, like, capsiate is the one that you find in a lot of the supplement trials, and I, I don't think it's spicy. If it is spicy, I would expect that it's way less spicy than capsaicin itself.
1: Okay, and and does that cause? Does that also cause like the GI distress issues? I would assume I don't, no. I
0: don't think so. No, the, the, the capsaicin studies look pretty good okay. in terms of the, the lack of GI uh, symptoms. It's usually the capsaicin itself or a, you know, like I said, a just straight up cayenne pepper. Mm-hmm. That That's usually where you see it.
1: So I, I'm wondering if it would be feasible to consume ergogenic amounts of capsaicin from a non-crazy amount of like bell pepper ingestion or something like that because i mean dude just like a a green bell pepper or like a red bell pepper remove the core cut it into strips that's that's some of the best snacking you can do oh i
0: I love bell peppers yeah i used to eat them all the time i need to get back into bell peppers bell peppers
1: are good stuff i kind of
0: forgot they exist oh i know why i forgot about them because you have to cut them and like wash them you don't you you kind of do
1: no you can eat you can eat it like an apple Yeah, just as you're going around the top, you just take small enough bites that you're not actually biting into the
0: core. And the thing is, won't it like collapse, though?
1: uh, So what I what I do, if I'm just going to eat a whole bell pepper, maybe I'm sharing too much information here, is I'll just kind of like nibble around the top, right? And so (laughs) listen, listen, it's like a little hamster, but it's fine. Like, it's actually really cool. Everyone, all the cool kids are doing it. So you nibble around the top and from there you can just pull the bottom off and like the, the core and the stem stick with like the top part. So that... that oh yeah, so, I see what you're saying. So yeah, you eat around the top, you've isolated all of the waste products and then you can just eat the bottom like an apple. Like you, you can cut it up, but you you don't need to.
0: Sweet. Okay. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to look into how much uh, capsiate is is in some of those different uh types of peppers out there. But um one thing I did find looking through the capsaicin research is there was a a study in 2019 that looked at in a rigorous evidence-based manner, looked at what kinds of beverages were helpful for uh extinguishing the very unpleasant, spicy food taste, you know, like the discomfort that that comes when you eat something that's just a little bit too spicy. Um, and so no surprise, they looked at a bunch of different beverages, no surprise that whole milk and skim and skim milk did pretty well. That's kind of the classic beverage that a lot of people know to turn to is going for milk. Uh, but a, a surprise contender, uh, a, a dark horse candidate that, that really, uh, really outperformed its reputation was Kool-Aid. Kool-Aid did quite well. Um, I forget what flavor, I think they went with like the red flavor in this study. But, uh, but yeah, so it, if you are uh, having some spicy foods and you're like, okay, this is unbearable. I need something. Milk, always a good choice. Uh, Kool-Aid, also a, a good contender there. Oh yeah. Perfect. That, that's excellent. Uh, so <laughs> I I will personally never drink Kool-Aid again. Uh, I'm out of the Kool-Aid game. So when I was in high school, there was this really, really intense wrestling camp not too far away. Uh, and we would go up there and, like, it was like you'd wake up, run a run a couple miles, and then you'd have, like, three practices a day, and then you'd sleep on the mats. Like, yeah. you did not – it was in, like, a barn. And, like, you did not leave the barn. Yeah. And it the amenities were, as you could anticipate, not great, right? So breakfast was, like, dry cereal. Lunch was, like, you know uh, – some sandwiches on like wonder bread. Uh, but, uh, basically the only beverage that you consumed the entire time you're there was Kool-Aid. And the reason was it was in the middle of nowhere and it was on like, you know, well water and it was not, this was not good. Well, water, I, I, I think they should have brought in someone to maybe do an expect an inspection of the well. I, I don't think the water coming out was great. Didn't smell great. They basically put the Kool Aid in to make it palatable enough to consume on like, you know, you can imagine you're in a room with no air conditioning middle of july three practices a day we needed to drink like six gallons of water a day yeah yeah, yeah. and without the kool-aid in there it simply wasn't drinkable
1: yeah they they did some economic calculations and realized that kool-aid is actually cheaper than water softener
0: <laughs> yeah no like it was it was like <laughs> that but yeah so it's almost like uh Anyone who's gone through a phase of drinking screwdrivers, you know, like vodka and orange juice, you like can't drink orange juice anymore after that. You you have like phantom tastes of the vodka and it just grosses you out. Yeah, yeah. Uh that's how I am with Kool-Aid. I can like taste the sulfur in Kool-Aid even if it's not there. <laughs> it was <laughs> oh, no. it was so disgusting. It's like <laughs> just like sulfur and iron and stuff. But yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah, no more Kool-Aid for me, but it, it's still a good choice. Uh, okay, moving on, I want to talk about keto really quickly. Uh, so there were actually a couple meta-analyses that came out recently looking at the effects of ketogenic diets on lean mass. So I'll link both of them in the show notes. Um, but uh, basically, the, the results were not particularly surprising if you've been staying up to date with the, the, the research on keto specifically when it comes to gaining muscle, right? So there have been a few studies lately that we've covered in mass about, uh, you know, ketogenic diets for the purpose of gaining muscle rather than using it as a weight loss intervention. And so uh, both of these meta-analyses pretty much ended up pointing in the same direction, which is that uh, when people go on these ketogenic diets and they're lifting um, a lot of times we do observe reductions in body weight, whether it's supposed to happen or not. A lot of times we see reductions in fat mass and body fat percentage, but the non-ketogenic comparator diets tend to do a little bit better when it comes to gains in lean body mass. And sometimes gains in uh, different strength and power outcomes. So uh, one of the meta-analyses here, uh, the title was Effects of Resistance Training Combined with a Ketogenic Diet on Body Composition, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Just looking through, they found 13 randomized controlled trials with 244 uh, participants that, that met their inclusion criteria. So, uh, the ketogenic diet significantly, uh, decreased body mass. Um, the, the, uh, weighted mean difference ended up being about three and a half kilograms. Uh, so there, there was a significant reduction in fat mass, a little over two kilograms, uh, you know, significant reduction in body fat percentage uh, of about two, two and a half percentage points compared to a non ketogenic comparator diet. Uh, but, the fat-free mass, there was also a significant reduction of about one and a quarter kilograms. And so, like I said, uh, we've gone through a few studies recently in mass looking at ketogenic diets that were specifically either given uh, in—the intention of the trial was not to lose weight. It it was either to keep people pretty close to maintenance or even induce a a caloric surplus, trying to put on some muscle and strength. And what we see with these ketogenic diets in these trials is— a lot of times the ketogenic group just can't help but lose fat. And so, you know, one of the thi- there there's two things that are kind of at play there, I suspect.
1: That, that quote is going to get clipped and is going to cause you headaches in the future. What did I say? Uh, people who do ketogenic diets just can't help but lose fat.
0: Oh, God, yeah. Well, it made sense in the context I was using it. Because it's you know the the trials were not intended to be weight loss trials, but they lost weight. Yeah, you know, so like it happened.
1: I, I'm I'm just saying that's going to get clipped, and your life is over. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I mean that'll be nice though because the, the then I'll be like a god in the ketogenic world, and every time I write about keto, they act like I hate keto. So maybe it'll earn me some some good uh, some good vibes over in the keto universe. Good luck, but uh, but anyway, no. So basically, these studies they're they're trying to build muscle and, and gain some weight, and a lot of times we'll see that the ketogenic group either fails to gain weight or, in some cases, even loses a little bit because the ketogenic diet, like, it has a pretty well known effect on you know reducing appetite. And uh, from a n equals one practical perspective, I've done a ketogenic diet for somewhere in the ballpark of like six to nine months straight. And I certainly noticed that Uh, my appetite was quite lower compared to similar calorie intake on a more moderate uh, macronutrient distribution. So it's a thing that happens, reduced appetite. And so if you're trying to lose fat, that can be a really positive thing. Uh, No question. But if you're trying to bulk on a ketogenic diet, it can be something that makes the process a little bit more challenging. Uh, another thing I noticed on the ketogenic diet was that I just didn't want to eat as much because I, the, the food choices were really limited. And I was like, Hmm, am I ready for another round of ground beef and broccoli? And at a certain point I was like, I'm just tired of these foods. And so I reduced my intake because I was just like, I'd rather not eat than eat these same foods again, to be honest. So that that's a me thing. That's not, it wouldn't be fair to necessarily criticize the diet for that. But
1: I mean, it, it certainly at least generalizes to the opposite side of the table here. Yeah. You, I, you found the same thing. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to eat like a stick of butter. So I guess I'm just not going to eat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but so, so those things could be playing into it. Of course, when you look at these types of studies, you have to also acknowledge the fact that uh, these studies almost exclusively use body comp devices that cannot truly account for the loss of glycogen and uh, the reductions in water weight that come with that. So when we've talked about these studies uh, in mass, as we're reviewing the research, we always acknowledge like, oh, you know, the keto group was, you know, this many kilograms off in terms of lean body mass, you know, maybe they, uh, you know, the, the uh, control group or, you know, the non keto group gained two and a half kilos of lean mass and the keto group only gained a half, you know, there might be a gap between them. That's one and a half, two, two and a half kilograms. And so then the challenge there with interpretation is saying, okay, what is the most likely number we can insert there if we're going to assume that this is water weight? You know, and in some of my articles, I've kind of run through my justification for what estimate I think is appropriate for that. Uh so so there's the appetite reduction thing there's the palatability thing that could pl- come into play and of course there's the fact that if you're on a ketogenic diet uh glycogen is is probably going to be lower in, in muscle and uh that that could take some water weight with it. Now whenever I bring that up people always point me to a study by Volick and colleagues suggesting that actually people on keto for a long time, their, their glycogen levels and their glycogen utilization during exercise. Well, I shouldn't say utilization. I'd have to double check that, but they basically found that glycogen levels, uh, were very similar at baseline. I think they were looking specifically at muscle glycogen in the figure figure that's in my head right now. Um, but eh, the majority of research, uh, looking at, keto adapted folks who have been on on the diet for some time generally shows lower muscle glycogen levels uh, than non-keto folks. Uh, So I definitely would not hang my hat on that finding like a lot of people have lately. But uh, anyway, when it comes to keto, um, like I said, Greg, every time I write about it, people are like, oh, dude, you're way too tough on ketogenic diets. I really don't think I am. Uh, I I think I do a terrific job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm kidding uh no like I-, I think a ketogenic diet there there's a time and a place for it like if you tell me like hey i'm on a ketogenic diet because i'm trying to lose some fat and i really struggle with a-, a really ravenous appetite and it fits my food preferences better and i've really thought out the design of my diet i've got all my bases covered it's a well-constructed diet Of course, like that, that is completely fine. There's no reason to say that it can't be a viable option in that scenario. Uh, if you're an ultra, ultra endurance athlete and you're like, dude, I do these like really low intensity things for extremely long durations and I just prefer a ketogenic diet. Um, you know, I, I don't see much of a problem with that either. I, I don't think it, some people kind of frame it as this, like, complete game changer where like if you're an ultra endurance athlete, who's not on keto that you're just, you know, you're going to fall behind the pack. I, I don't think I buy into that, but, but if you're doing a form of exercise that truly has minimal high intensity efforts
1: or, or like if you're a, or if it's the opposite and it's only very high intensity efforts, like if you're a power lifter who already thinks anything over three reps is cardio, yeah, you're probably fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. And that's another thing is, um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll write about keto and and I'll, I'll have that. I'll, somebody will be like, dude, I'm on keto and it's been going great. I like, I haven't seen any drops in performance. I'm like, right. But you only do doubles and triples. (laughs) Like you've, you've never touched glycogen in your life. It's like phosphocreatine during your sets. And then you're just kind of aerobically replenishing phosphocreatine stores, uh, between sets. So yeah, you're good. So yeah, I mean like I, am not anti keto. It's just like, you know, every now and then I'll, I'll talk to people who it's like, yeah, you know, I, I do a fair bit of cardio, uh, you know, a lot of my resistance training right down the middle sets of eight to 12, sometimes up to 15. And I'm like, "Ah, I just feel like you'd be better off with some carbs in your life. You know, uh, if, if you're trying to squeeze every last drop out of your training, um, but you know, not everybody has to. So that, that's another thing to keep in mind. Like when, when we write articles about like how to optimize nutrition for training, the assumption baked in there is that you wish to optimize it. But like, dude, like a lot of times I train fasted, uh, and I don't think it's optimal. Like I've talked about like my my recommendations for pre workout nutrition, but sometimes I just want to roll out of bed and get my workout in because I don't want to skip it. And if I don't do it first thing in the morning, I'm going to skip it sometimes if I know what my, my calendar is looking like that day. Mm-hmm. So like, dude, I, I mean, Greg, I'm sure that you can say the same, but I have a, a very impressive track record of doing suboptimal things, but like, it's fine. You know, not everything has to be optimized. The important thing is identifying what is optimal and then deciding if you, if you wish to do that or not. Uh, So yeah, I mean, I I have no interest in talking people out of keto. But I think when you look at the research on specifically trying to utilize ketogenic diets for bulking for building muscle and adding lean mass, uh, it just doesn't seem like like the best option out there doesn't mean it can't be done. Uh, So again, people are going to say, well, I did keto and I gained, you know, six pounds of muscle and that that's terrific. And, And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But might have been a path of lesser resistance had you gone with a more moderate, uh, macronutrient distribution. So yeah, that's basically, uh, this meta-analysis lines up pretty well with the last couple times we've looked at it in mass, which just indicates that it's viable, but, but probably not optimal for muscle gains, uh, you know, for a bulking diet,
1: dude, I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking about the logistics of being in a surplus on a ketogenic diet. Because, like, I I was trying to uh, gradually lose weight when I did keto, and I ended up losing weight pretty quickly due to what we talked about before. Like, I really just don't want to eat another serving of, like, fatty ground beef. Or, like, you know, if I want to have, say, chicken thighs, like, I need to add extra fat to it to to stay in ketosis or whatever like dude that was tough enough when I was trying to be in a small deficit if I was trying to be in like a two three four hundred calorie per day surplus forget about it dude like I that that makes these research findings so incredibly understandable because I'm just thinking like man for myself for a week or two adherence would be fine and then after that I'd be like dude, fuck science. Like I don't like these researchers that much. Like I'm just not going to eat that much.
0: Yeah. Another thing logistically. So if you think about it, if you're tracking your, let's say you're using some oil to get your calories up and you're, you're weighing it, right? So you have like a little weighing container on your scale and you pour the oil in and then you're going to cook something on a pan with it. And then you transfer it from the measuring cup into the pan. Uh, I think a lot of people lose calories on ketogenic diets because there there's a little residual oil in the measuring cup and then there's a little residual oil in the pan unless you're licking the pan clean when you're done. I think people also, one of the things that makes it challenging with uh, with bulking is there's the appetite thing, there's the food selection thing, but there's also, I, I think, a, I know it, it sounds like overly... Um, obsessive about the details but i if if you're doing that for several meals a day you you could actually be taking in quite a few fewer calories than you thought in my opinion uh perhaps i sound like like an idiot there but no i
1: i I think that's plausible i mean if you if you just look and see what like four grams of olive oil looks like it's not that's not much olive oil right like yeah, you could you could have a little bit left behind in a container, in a pan, on your plate, in your bowl. Yeah. And uh, you know, if if there's like a pretty good bit of fat in each meal, I don't think it's completely unreasonable that you could lose ten grams of fat between the pan, the plate, and the, the measuring vessel each meal. And that adds up to yeah, you know, ninety if,
0: calories a meal
1: yeah, if, if you eat like four meals a day, that's like 350, 360 calories a day. Like that, that seems pretty plausible to me.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I, I don't, uh, I I certainly would never indicate that you can't build muscle on a ketogenic diet, That that would be a non-evidence based, uh, perspective in my opinion. Um, but I think when we compare it to a more moderate, uh, macronutrient distribution, it just doesn't seem to be the optimal way to go. So you can certainly uh, make some progress with it. But um, unless you're really adamant about keto, if you come to me and say, Hey, Eric, I want to bulk up, I want to really put on some some muscle mass here I want to gain some weight. uh, Keto would not be my first choice. Um, But you know, it it's certainly an option out there. And if you really like it, then honestly, I'm not saying this to be a smart ass. I I think it's terrific. You know, finding a diet that works for you is important and, uh, it's okay that different people are on different diets. Um, all right. So Greg, let's see what's, uh, what's up next here. Uh, we got a coach's corner, coach's corner, getting very practical. Uh, let's see what you got.
1: Yeah. So, uh, it's summertime, baby. Mid June, Um, you know, weather's good. Northern hemisphere, this is the time people start going on vacation. Uh, A lot of people go early June. A lot of people try to get out of town for 4th of July in the U.S. People might have some trips planned later in the summer. Whatever. This is summer vacation time. And so, uh, I've been getting a lot of questions about like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm doing one of your programs and I'm going on vacation this week. Like, what should I do about it? Um, and just a lot of general chatter like, oh, I'm going on a vacation for a week. How, how do I avoid losing my gains? And so, uh, yeah, just just want to do a coach's corner about vacations and taking uh, taking a little bit of time away from training, not due to injury kind of more generally. Um, so, OK. Let's say you're you know you're someone you have built a lot of muscle, you've built a lot of strength, uh, and you want to try to uh, not kind of lose where you are in a program, so you can jump right right back in after a trip. Uh, but you're going with your family and you don't want to sneak away to a gym two hours a day every day on your vacation. One, good for you. people who do that, absolutely insane. Uh, No judgment if you do, but a little bit like you're on vacation, dude, just enjoy it. Um, So, okay, if you're not going to the gym every day on vacation and you definitely want to try to maintain everything you have and you uh, feel like you can't, you you know, maybe you exercise just for for mental health. It makes you feel good. Or or maybe you just feel like you need to do a little bit of something. What should you do? Uh, Body weight training works great we talked about this at the start of the pandemic when gyms closed like the variety of exercises you can do without a gym to continue training all major muscle groups of your body people who are um you know people who've pretty much exclusively done gym workouts for a long time you know maybe haven't thought that much about body weight training and how you can target various muscle groups with just body weight or with very minimal equipment uh, there's a there's a good article on stronger by science that basically just goes through and lists like hey you know you're trying to train your shoulders here are some options you're trying to train your hamstrings here are some options uh, if you get just like a, a basic set of resistance bands and you have your body weight you're set you can train anything. You know, and uh take twenty thirty minutes a day, hit most of your major muscle groups, you'll be fine um so yeah, if you wanna keep training on vacation, you can accomplish a lot with just body weight training or with body weight training and a set of resistance bands, okay, so uh moving on, a popular idea that I see bandied about is like, hey, you know, I'm going on vacation um. I'm not planning on training while I'm there, not going to the gym, not, you know, I don't want to do any body weight training. It's just going to be chill vibes the whole time. Uh, so maybe what I should do is intentionally overreach in the week or two leading up to my vacation. So during that week that I'm not training, I'll super compensate and come back bigger and stronger than ever before. Basically, intentionally overreach such that your body will be <laughs> recovering and supercompensating the whole time you're on vacation. So that that's an idea that I see bandied around a bit. Um, and there is some degree of evidence that it could actually be a thing. So uh, I, I wrote an article uh, in Mass a couple years ago about a study by Bjornson looking at delayed hypertrophic supercompensation and, um, that, that was an idea that I'd seen suggested before, but uh, the, the Björnson study was the first uh, empirical evidence that, that I'd seen uh, that convincingly demonstrated that it could exist. Uh, we republished that article on Stronger by Science. That'll be linked in the show notes if you would like to read it. Uh, so th- there might be something to this concept physiologically, but uh, just to throw a little bit of cold water on this idea one the observed hypertrophic supercompensation in the Bjornsen study was only observed on the muscle fiber level so after uh, cessation of training they saw that type 1 and type 2 muscle fibers continued to uh, increase in cross sectional area for several days after the end of the training period that actually wasn't observed with whole muscle size though um so there you know, it could have just been like various things offsetting so you stop training maybe you get a slight decrease in muscle edema but you also get a slight increase in fiber cross-sectional area kind of balances out when you're talking about whole muscle size but eh, theor- theoretically it's a net positive um but anyway it's it's probably not going to show up in terms of like huge visual changes um two the subjects were untrained so you know a little bit easier to intentionally overreach uh if you're untrained than if you're well trained so you know who knows how how much you would have to ramp up your training to uh induce a similar effect you know if you've been training consistently for a few years uh and two or and three the the training protocol they used in that study was uh was pretty brutal, even if they weren't using untrained lifters. <laughs> so uh, it in, it involved two blocks, two five-day blocks of training with seven workouts per day. So uh, they, they were looking at delayed hypertrophic supercompensation uh, after, you know, a- after the end of training, after the second block. And the second block, uh, people were training their quads once per day, four sets to failure for three days and then twice per day four sets to failure for two days so seven workouts over five days and the last two days they were doing two a days all sets taken to failure um and that that induced enough overreaching that they saw some uh subsequent delayed fiber hypertrophy i assume you're not going to be doing something similar with all muscle groups of your body uh, prior to vacation if you are more power to you but uh yeah, that's that's a that's a pretty rough training protocol. So, in my opinion, there might be some degree of physiological rationale for this idea, but to me, the risk to reward ratio just doesn't make much sense. Um, you know, because if you're intentionally overreaching, you're probably opening yourself up to some degree of increased injury risk. Uh, and last thing you want to do is be like, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm taking. I'm taking a week at the beach I'm gonna hang out vibe oh no like I <laughs> I sustained a, a serious sprain or strain uh, right before I left and so now uh, instead of chilling and vibing I'm just in pain the whole time and hobbling around so you know i I wouldn't recommend that approach but uh th- theoretically there's some degree of rationale for it but again I personally do not recommend it My recommended approach, if you're going on vacation, it's just it's just chill out, man, Uh, or or woman. Um, Like if you're training pretty hard, pretty consistently year round, I think a lot of people. So I, I think a lot of people won't have a inclination to keep exercising on vacation or to. Uh, push themselves extra hard with exercise before vacation because they're afraid they're going to lose a substantial amount of the progress they've made uh, if they allow themselves just to rest and relax. Um, some some people, like I mentioned before, maybe just exercise every day. It's become a habit solely because it makes you feel good. And there's, um, you know, those other factors I just talked about not really a big thing you're not necessarily doing it because you're afraid you'll lose some muscle you just do it because you like it if that's the case very cool more power to you but if there is that kind of level of neuroticism like I've worked so hard for this I can't I can't relax for a week because I feel like it's going to slip away from me um to some substantial degree you just don't need to worry about that Uh, one week off isn't going to substantially affect anything that you've worked towards. Um, a a week away from training isn't enough time to substantially lose any strength. If anything, you might come back stronger just because (laughs) you're, you're dropping your fatigue, you're going to be rested and recovered. And if strength is a little bit lower when you get back to training, it's not because you're actually weaker, like you're, you're just going to need to take a week to to dust some rust off and then you'll be fine. Uh, and also a week away isn't enough time to lose any appreciable degree of muscle at all. Um, something that people will occasionally discuss is like, oh man, I was out of the gym for a week and I, I just feel like my muscles look smaller, feel smaller. There there might be some degree of truth to that, but it's not actual loss of contractile tissue. Uh if you're training pretty hard, pretty consistently, you probably have at least some small degree of muscle edema at all times, like your muscles are slightly swollen. Um and if you're consistently exercising pretty hard and and have a fair bit of carbohydrate in your diet, uh Exercise allows you to store slightly higher levels of glycogen in your muscles, which, again, more fluid storage might make them appear slightly larger and more pumped. So, you know, you take a week away from training. uh, You're not exercising those muscles the same way. Maybe a little bit of inflammation goes down. And yeah, you know, after a week out of the gym, your muscles might look a little smaller. But don't worry, you haven't lost muscle all of the contractile tissue is still there. Uh, it's, it's purely those, those fluid shifts. And, uh, you know, as soon as you start training again, uh, <laughs> all of that visual appearance of muscle is going to come back pretty much immediately. So if, you're, if you feel the need to train because you think you're going to lose strength, lose muscle with a week out of the gym you just don't need to worry about it. It it will be perfectly fine. Uh, and then the last thing I want to say on the topic is if you do as I recommend and just take a week off, enjoy yourself, vibe, have a good time. Um, first week back in the gym, it's not a terrible idea to dial things back a little bit to ease yourself back into training. Um, so you know, it shouldn't be super, super easy, but, uh, don't go in like planning to hit big PRs. That That's a mistake I see, uh, especially, especially some strength athletes make. They're like, Ooh, I'm going to basically treat this as if I was tapering for a meet. Um, like, <laughs> you know, I, I, might, the only other time that I might take a week off of heavy training is when I'm peaking for a meet. So I'm going to treat vacation the same way. And first session back, uh, you know i'm i'm, I'm going to see what this deload has done for me and and try to hit something really heavy go for some prs i wouldn't recommend that um you know unless you do happen to have a meet on the saturday after your vacation um in general for that first week back in training uh not a bad idea to to ease yourself back in somewhat gently so you know maybe drop a set per exercise maybe decrease loads by about 5% Maybe stop one or two reps further from failure than you typically would. We're not talking major, major training alterations. Just take everything down half a step, uh, you know, just to re-acclimate to the gym, uh, re-expose your tissues to load. And then that second week back, you know, go ham, train as you typically would. Uh, so that that's how I would recommend uh, approaching time off.
0: Yeah. You know, I've done really all of these approaches. Uh, you know, I, I've had vacations where I, I find a local gym and just continue my training as normal just because I was having fun with my training at the time. And I was like, oh, I'd, I'd love to have fun, you know, five very fun workouts while I'm on vacation. So I, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, I've also done uh, the, you know, the the approach to train really hard the week leading into it. Uh, so then, you know, You kind of take that week off because you really at that point need a week off. I've done, you know, modified training where I do body weight and band stuff. And then, of course, I've also taken full weeks off. So, you know, each approach, there's a time and a place there are pros and cons. But I did have a question for you, which is, you know, you kind of had this whole topic. the, The assumption baked into it was that vacation is one week long. What is the duration at which point you would say, okay, let's at least do some body weight and band stuff if we're going to be away for, you know, this long?
1: I'd say if you're going longer than two weeks, uh, probably not a bad idea to go into it with the intention that you're going to do at least a little bit of something along the way. Uh, I, I think I think up to two weeks is pretty safe to just, you know, not worry about it and just relax. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're taking a month long trip somewhere that that probably is enough time to lose a meaningful amount of muscle mass. Um, so yeah, yeah, if, if, if it's like a pretty long trip, you know, that's that that then uh, like body weight training or like trying to find a gym along the way to maybe get in like one weekly workout uh, that, that might be start becoming more of a consideration.
0: Yeah, and and you know, you don't have to do much, you know. So if you're going to be somewhere for 3 weeks or 4 weeks and you're like, "You know what? I I don't want to lose a bunch of gains, but I also don't want to spend my whole vacation in the gym, right?" Uh, you know, there's research that you could do a third of your volume, uh maybe even as little as like a ninth of your volume, uh and as long as you're keeping the intensity high, you you should be able to maintain a decent amount of of what you've gained. So You don't have to go in and do full volume workouts. You can really streamline things. uh, As long as you're getting after it, uh, you should be able to maintain pretty well. So, you know, that like like I said, that only applies for for the longer term thing. But I would say don't delude yourself into thinking that a nutritional intervention is going to fix this. So that's one thing a lot of people do is they say like, oh, no, it's fine. I was out of the gym for six weeks, but like I ate a lot of protein. And like that is not gonna save you in this scenario. Same, you know, same, it's not like protein supplementation or branch chain amino acid supplementation. It's just not gonna get the job done. It's either training or no training. You're either providing the stimulus or you're not. So, you know, make an informed decision about how you wanna approach it, but don't trick yourself into thinking that there's kind of a nutritional hack that can make up for being out of the gym for four, five, six weeks.
1: Yeah, uh, and one one thing I just want to circle back on. I think I probably uh, came in a bit too hot insofar as it relates to uh, people going to the gym while they're on vacation. My my assumption is that like you know families are going on vacation, or maybe you're going on vacation with a partner who's maybe not as into training as you are, and you, you know, don't,
0: you don't need those people in your life. T- time.
1: Yeah. The the assumption I was working with is basically like time spent in the gym is time spent away from the vacation and the people you're vacationing with. If you're just going on vacation by yourself and you love the gym and that's like something that, that gets you those good chill vibes. Or if you're going on vacation with someone else who's just as into the gym as you are, or if you had time carved out where it's like, ah, people are going to go their separate ways. Like. Some people are going to lay out on the beach. Some people are going to go shopping, and you're like, "Yeah, I want to go to the gym at this time." Like, that's totally cool. I, I think I came across more judgmental than I meant to. Um, I I've definitely worked out on vacation, and in fact, I've uh, previously used vacations um, partially as excuses to visit gyms that I that I thought looked cool that i'd wanted to train at so yeah uh, went to orlando a few years ago uh, checked out orlando barbell brian schwab's gym it was super cool uh, when i was up in philly a few years ago um worked out at iron sport gym uh right there outside of philly uh so yeah i mean you know ba- basically if you're on vacation it should be a vacation and if uh, if going to the gym doesn't detract from the vacation and that's something that is good vacation vibes for you, not going to fuck up the trip for anyone else, cool, go for it. Uh, I, I feel like I came across as somewhat judgmental about that and I, I did not intend to. But basically, if you're going to the gym for good, chill vacation vibes, sweet. If you're going out of like a felt psychological necessity, to work out five times per week so you don't lose your gains but like you don't really want to go to the gym but you feel like you need to uh just chill out like you you don't need to
0: yeah i used to live in columbus which is very famously the location of the arnold classic sports festival not a lot of people traveling in there were skipping their workouts i can tell you that for sure (laughs) Uh, a lot of people in the gyms that week uh, cool. So moving on, I think we've got some uh, some good questions from our listeners. Um, the first one I am assuming is for me, so I'm going to take that one. Uh, Lane Folks asked a question: uh, Preferred body hair removal techniques. Uh, he says he assumes that a pro bodybuilder would have some interesting insights.
1: Uh, a pro natural or a pro uh, classic bodybuilder probably would as well.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to try not to be offended uh, that it just completely threw away half of my professional athletic career with the question, but that's fine. Um, yeah, so here's the thing about hair removal. And Greg, I can see your chest hair poking out through your uh showing a lot of skin today i just have really open uh, neckline there really plunging neckline on that on that shirt but anyway you have no no opinion on this topic for certain um anyway so hair removal here's the deal i've said this before i'll say it again i can starve to death or near to death in bodybuilding prep it's fine it's not ideal but it's kind of part of the game I hate hair removal. It is my least favorite thing about bodybuilding by a mile. Hair removal and the tanning process. I hate both of them so much. So, uh, you know, body hair removal, if you're doing it for bodybuilding purposes, some people are like, oh, shaving is annoying. I'm going to use like a, a chemical strategy like uh, like Nair, where you just kind of put it on and then you like just wipe off your hair. Uh, I've heard some... I've heard people I trust tell me not to do that for bodybuilding because uh some people their skin doesn't react too well to it. And so then it you know, there's all sorts of like puffiness and redness and that that's not what you want on stage. And when when you have all those tanning products for a physique sport, uh like sometimes the tanning product doesn't want to stick to your skin very well, like depending on I don't know characteristics of your skin. I don't really understand how it works. I like I said, it's my least favorite part of being a competitive bodybuilder. But basically, what you got to do is just shave it. It's the way it goes. You use like shaving cream, or you can use like soap as shaving cream. I think uh, I'm not an expert on this. I don't know, but you just shave it, and it's it's a pain, and it takes so long, and I hate it. And then I, I yeah. If I never had to, to do hair removal again, then I never would. I probably, yeah, it's just terrible. You just shave. You get the, the razor that is going to allow you to not just completely tear your skin off and, and just do your best with it. Have a schedule though. You don't want to do it all at the same time. That's a lot of surface area. Do like your arms one day and your you know chest and abdomen a different day and your legs the other day. That's the best I can do.
1: I assume you have to get assistance for your back right
0: correct yeah you're gonna have to get some assistance
1: cool makes sense
0: yeah i've had a lot of people shave my back (laughs) in my life (laughs) but yeah that's the best i can do but honestly my my number one tip is uh for body hair removal avoid it if you if you can because it's not fun
1: yeah yeah i mean outside of a sport where you have to do it like bodybuilding or swimming I just don't know why you would.
0: It's awful. It's terrible. Uh, Moving on. I've got a question here from Marcees Gritans. Does that seem correct?
1: I suppose.
0: So the question is, why is there so much controversy regarding multivitamin consumption with many evidence-based people? Some people recommend against their use. Others recommend uh, using multivitamins as an insurance policy against micronutrient deficiencies. Under what circumstances would you recommend their use? Is it worth taking them, even if you're not deep into a cut and probably not risking any serious deficiencies? Well, uh, honestly, I'm more in the camp of multivitamins being a a pretty low risk risk pretty cost effective insurance policy against micronutrient deficiencies. Um, is that a hill that I will die on? No. If if you don't want to take a multivitamin, I'm very comfortable with you not taking a multivitamin. Like this is not a hobby horse topic where I need I feel the need to get multivitamins in every household. Uh, but You know, a lot of people with their dietary choices are not going through and carefully making sure they're getting all of their micronutrient bases covered. Uh, Some micronutrients, especially you know, people that are on diets that exclude entire food groups, uh, it can be easy to unknowingly kind of disregard a micronutrient that you don't think about much. You know, so especially when you start getting into some of the less talked about minerals. Uh, A a lot of them, you just don't think about it too much.
1: Yeah. Like when when was the last time you checked your manganese intake or or like your selenium intake?
0: Yeah. There's just a lot of micronutrients that people just don't really think about. And and some like food tracking softwares, like a lot of times you you can't even find it in there. And uh, so, yeah, I I just, I, I don't really see the downside of if you're uncertain about your micronutrient intakes, especially if there are entire food groups that you don't consume, I just don't see, I don't see why it would be controversial. <laughs> I think like the, the controversy, co- controversy should uh, really only, th- this is how the conversation should go. Uh, hey, uh, do you think I should take a multivitamin? I don't know. Do you have any concerns that you're not getting all your micronutrients? Absolutely not. I'm sure I'm getting all of them cool, then don't take it like that. That's a pretty straightforward, uh, very defensible solution uh, to that problem. But if you have doubts and you're uncertain and you don't feel like doing a full nutrition audit and looking through every possible uh, micronutrient uh, and, you know, by the way, you know, some micronutrients, you know, they don't absorb very well with each other. Or if you take them and you don't have something else in the meal, it might not absorb very well.
1: And and I mean, a, a lot of multivitamins use versions of particular uh, micronutrients that do have poor oral bioavailability so like a, a big one a, a big one that i see um is like a lot of them use if they have like zinc and magnesium in them they'll use like zinc and magnesium oxide which have which i think are the cheapest to produce but have yeah. <laughs> something approaching zero oral bioavailability like the the uh, chelates or chelates are are much better are much better absorbed so like you you do have to deal with the potential drawback of like poorly formulated products and you as the consumer probably don't want to do several hours of research to figure out the oral the oral bioavailability of every vitamin and mineral in a particular multivitamin
0: well but but also in in the food sources that you're using you know so like you you might find that based on the label content like oh yeah i got all the calcium i need but some of your food sources for calcium had poor bioavailability you know like so a a lot of times i I, yeah like i said i just think it's not a terrible insurance policy but if you don't want to take it like you know then don't take it. You could always go get a blood test and see if you have any notable uh, deficiencies or, uh, you know, even, even if it's not like a clinical deficiency, it could be subclinical, you could just have slightly suboptimal blood levels of a given, uh, a given nutrient. So th- the one thing I would push back against is that some people treat this topic as if, you know, nutritional deficiencies are a thing of the past and it's like oh dude yeah we solved that when we started adding stuff to like lucky charms <laughs> you know we we fortified all these foods you know uh so unless you're going really far out of your way to have an incomplete diet there's no way you could have suboptimal levels of, of certain micronutrients that is a thing i see uh, uh repeated often and I just don't think that's accurate. I I, I think there are many instances. It's, I mean, it's not like, I don't want to be like, uh, I don't want to sensationalize it and act like, yeah, most people have just a hugely problematic nutrient insufficiency, but it's not that uncommon to see people who have slightly suboptimal levels of, of a given micronutrient and might have a slight benefit, uh, from, from correcting that. So, Yeah, I I don't think it's like a critical must have supplement. But I also don't I don't get why it would be controversial. Because if you take it and you didn't need it, I I don't see really much potential for harm. And it's not a a particularly high cost uh, supplement as far as the supplement markets concerned. So um, I, I have seen people say like, Oh, man, there's all these studies with like vitamin D toxicity or increased risk of this bad outcome with high dose vitamin E. But I mean, you look at the formulation of a basic multivitamin, multimineral supplement, they don't have the types of doses that you're seeing associated with vitamin D toxicities or associated with, you know, issues with super high dose vitamin E. So I think a lot of that is, um, you know, there are some true statements out there that simply don't apply to the typical multivitamin formulation. So that's my take.
1: Yeah, so I I have two things I would add. Um, One is vaguely related. So I'll I'll get to that second. First thing, though, is that I I do think that um, one potential risk of using a multivitamin is it could have uh, something akin to like a health halo effect where people assume like, ah, you know, I'm I'm munching my Flintstone vitamin every day. So my my micronutrient intake is covered. So like, I really just don't need to worry about food quality too much beyond that. Like, you know, they instead of viewing it as an insurance policy where there might still be some gaps that you're not aware of in an otherwise good diet. Some people may see it as like a an insurance policy that allows them to eat a not very good overall diet, and not have to worry about things. And one, I mean, uh, I, I do think that you're probably better off trying to get your micronutrients in from whole foods, if possible. And two, like, there are <laughs> there are benefits to, say, fruit and vegetable intake that uh, aren't going to show up in, like, a vitamin and mineral blood assay. So, Um, you know, for example, earlier in this podcast, uh, Trex talked about capsaicin and capsaicinoids. Like they may have some positive effects, but like they're not micronutrients that you're going to get blood tests for. Um, the, there's like a class of compounds in brassica vegetables called isothiocyanates that have a lot of positive health effects. Again, not classically defined micronutrients. Uh, you got, you got polyphenols and anthocyanins and in, in fruits and berries. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of good shit, especially in plant foods that uh, aren't going to show up as vitamins and minerals. And so, you know, if you're eat, eating a generally good, diverse diet, uh, and and you think like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to take a, a multivitamin just to be safe. I think that's totally cool. I think if you look at it from the opposite perspective of like, Hey, I don't have to worry about the overall quality of my diet because I am taking a multivitamin. Uh, I think you're probably going to be missing out on a lot of other good stuff due to a, uh, a faulty think- thinking pattern.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I certainly agree with that. And you know, that's, that's kind of why I frame it as an insurance policy. Cause like, you know, I've got health insurance, but you know, I'm I'm not going too crazy, right? Like I, I don't want to need it. So like, yeah, I, I, if you're, if you're asking like, Hey, are multivitamins a suitable replacement for eating good foods, then like definitely not like there, like you said, there, there are definitely uh, a lot of beneficial bioactive compounds in a variety of different foods that, that it, it would be ideal to get them from, from whole foods. Right. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is like one of the biggest criticisms I see with, uh, multivitamins is people will be like, dude, look at this study, the total waste of money. I'm very upset. I'm very pissed. Like my personal take is like, if you didn't need your multivitamin, I, I kind of view that as the, the good scenario, not the bad scenario. And so like a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, we, you know, we looked at, uh, mortality in this big group of people in a country where fortunately there's high food availability and what do you know the multivitamins didn't make people live longer in a a big population of folks with you know a lot of access to food that's terrific (laughs) like that's a good thing that the fact that people are are getting adequate intakes uh you know from their diet that that's not a bad thing so like I don't know I, some people look at that outcome and say oh I had a very good balanced diet this whole time and I'm upset about it I don't see it that way
1: yeah and one of the uh, rhetorical things that you'll see people say is they'll frame it the same way as a lot of other supplement discussions like ah you're just flushing money down the drain it's like dude multivitamins are like fucking 10 cents a pill like come on man
0: yeah, don't give me that argument. If you drink more than a beer a month, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, like, come on, man. Like, yeah, it's 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 not a high cost dietary supplement compared to others. And you know we've got people out there who take all sorts of stuff. And yeah, I I just I don't see where it, I don't think it's interesting enough to have a controversy. I I think that's my general take.
1: No, I I agree. Uh, so. That that was the thing I had on subject. The the thing that I alluded to that is slightly off topic, but I found it quite interesting. Uh, is I came across an article uh, a couple weeks ago um, discussing how uh, iodine deficiencies are apparently making a comeback for a couple reasons. One is um, so uh, h- historically, like people would consume. Some degree of iodine in their water, um, and and like the goiter belt in the USA, that that was largely associated with just the area of the US that had low iodine levels in water, um, and so like more and more people are drinking like hyper-filtered, hyper-distilled water now, and so uh, there's there's a decrease in iodine intake from water, and the other thing, like the thing that really pretty much wiped out iodine deficiencies in the U S at least was uh, fortification of table salt with iodine. Uh, but more and more people are shifting towards fancy salt. And so they're not just using, you know, the, the good classic, uh, Morton's table salt with the really fine grains and iodine fortification. Like more and more people are using, um, like kosher salt or like flaky salt or whatever, uh, that hasn't been fortified with iodine. So you know, I'm not trying to scaremonger. like most people probably still don't need to worry about iodine deficiencies. But that that was um, that was like a public health issue that had been basically eradicated in the US that is uh, starting to make a little bit of a comeback. And previously, it was largely associated with poverty. And now it's more associated with affluence from people drinking fancier water and using fancier salt. Um so I, I find that somewhat interesting as a, as a practical thing. You know, if, if you don't, if you don't want to have to think about iodine intake at all, just eat seafood like once or twice a month, uh, or, or seaweed. I mean, seaweed has so much iodine. It's insane. Uh, and if you are someone who likes fancy salt, I am among those people. I have my, my diamond kosher for seasoning meat. Uh, and I have my flaky salt is my finishing salt, but If I'm salting something where it's not like specifically to um, like dry brine a meat or as like a finishing salt where texture doesn't matter all that much, uh, I still use just plain table salt if, you know, I'm salting pasta water or salting water that I'm going to use to make rice with. Uh, Not a terrible idea to just use plain old-fashioned iodine enriched salt for salt applications where... The uh, the actual texture of the salt doesn't really matter because table salt is still tastes like salt. Um, so yeah, not not a terrible idea if you're if you're a fancy salt aficionado.
0: Yeah, I did some fact checking uh, because you know I mean the show is rigorous and. So I, I looked up uh, the the vitamin that I use because I I I'll, I'll be honest I'll be completely transparent here I was wondering when I said like multivitamins are a low cost intervention I was like am I kind of being an asshole in saying that but I looked it up you could get uh, the the vitamin I take a, a full year supply for like twelve dollars so like I said like. If you go out to a brewery tonight and get two beers, you just, you just got a year worth of multivitamin costs. So when everybody kind of says that line, like, oh dude, that's such a waste of money. Dude, it's like, that's like four cents a capsule. Yeah. It's, it's, it is not by definition, a huge waste of money because like I said, it's a year supply for like 12 or 15 bucks. Uh, okay. So moving on. Uh, what's the next one here?
1: yeah, uh, so have a a question from reddit from relief pitcher twenty two uh I believe relief pitcher twenty two is the same person who previously asked a question uh related to like if you could build the ideal athlete for a particular sport, what would they look like uh and I wasn't paying attention to the username, and I said, like you know, a baseball pitcher who's like nine nine feet tall and has crazy long arms. Uh, he, he was very tickled by that response, uh, because he is a relief pitcher and the 22nd one. Uh, but anyway, another question, uh, is there much of a difference in hypertrophy between doing straight sets and having your last set to failure versus doing all sets at eight RPE and reps decreasing as you fatigue? So, uh, you know, first thing off the bat, important to acknowledge uh uh, as far as i'm aware there's no research directly analyzing this question um and if there was uh god have mercy on their soul if they tried to do a accurate and justifiable power calculation because if if there were to be a difference between these two interventions you'd assume very small effect size probably need like 400 subjects per group. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't think there's any research on this. And and practically, I don't think there would be much of a difference. Um, based based on the research that I've seen, uh, and, and if you're interested in reading about this and, and the particular studies more, um, you can just Google Stronger by Science effective reps and uh, the relevant research will be linked and discussed near the end of that article. Uh, But anyway, based on the research I've seen, there's nothing... the, The specific details of a set to make it sufficiently challenging to induce a robust hypertrophic response, it's not that it's not like you're trying to thread a needle to achieve the ideal stimulus there. Um, as long as the load isn't wildly too heavy or wildly too light, uh, such that, you know, a pretty challenging set lands you somewhere between about five and 30 reps, give or take. Uh, and as long as you're within, I would say two or three reps from failure, uh, our colleague at Mass, Mike Zordos, I think would say like six or seven reps from failure. For my money, that seems a little bit too easy, but uh whatever. I, I think as long as you're within two or three reps from failure, you'll probably be fine. Um so yeah, in, in both of these scenarios, you know, if you're doing say three sets of ten and you're hitting failure on the third set, you probably don't have that that much more than three reps in reserve on the first set. Um, and I don't think that you get like a bonus from hitting failure on the last set compared to the other scenario of two reps in the tank on all sets. I think fundamentally it's the same training stimulus, um, or the, the training stimulus induced by those two different approaches differs too little to practically matter for the vast majority of people. So, uh, Whichever one of those vibes with you better, um, feel feel free to go with that. Uh, functionally, I think they'll they'll have this the same impact long term.
0: Yeah, in my coaching, uh, working with my one on one clients, I, I basically do a combination of both of these things. Uh, there there are some exercises where I I program out some straight sets, and then we've got like a, an auto regulated final set where we get kind of close to failure. Uh, so. Not all the way to failure, but I usually tell them like, Hey, leave one or two reps in the tank. Now I've got other exercises where start to finish, it's auto-regulated, uh, you know, get as many reps as rep, as many reps as you can get. So, uh, I agree with you. I don't think there's a huge difference and really my decision for which exercises, uh, are, are programmed a certain way. It's, it's mostly logistical more than anything.
1: Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, Oh, the the other thing I'll add is for me it might differ a little bit based on whether you're talking about a heavy axially axially loaded barbell exercise versus like an assistance lift. I don't know that I ever want, not ever. I don't I don't want people frequently say squatting until they actually fail a rep. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you know the the. Yeah, you know, leave a couple reps in the tank approach for something like a squat, maybe a deadlift. I, I think I'd opt for that, for, for those types of exercises. Most other things, I don't think it matters too much. If you don't want to go to failure, don't. Uh, or if you're cool reaching failure on the last set, go for it. So yeah, I, I think that there's like a slight consideration for the exercise you're talking about, but there, are, there also aren't that many heavy heavy axially loaded exercises. So really, we're just talking about squats and maybe deadlifts.
0: Yeah, and with the squat and the deadlifts, sometimes I'll use an approach where I'll give straight sets until the final set. And for the final set, instead of saying, hey, take it to failure, I'll say leave one rep in the tank or leave, leave two or leave three. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I can't remember the last time I told a client Bro, just throw a load on your back and go until you fall. Like I've never told a client that, but I, I can't remember the last time I really aggressively programmed a you know, a deadlift or, or squat set to, to absolute true failure. It's it's not something I do.
1: That's one of the reasons that I really like front squatting in gyms with bumpers, because I don't like having to think when the bar's on my back. Like I just want to go for it. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't like having to stop between reps on squats and thinking like, I think I got this next one, but how much do I trust my spotters? Like, yeah, whatever. Front squats with bumpers, you can go to failure. It's great because.
0: Just dump it. Yeah.
1: If if you if if it gets too hard, the bar will simply fall and you'll be fine. Uh, I think it's excellent. All right. Um. So Placid Vlad asks. What are the biggest current myths you're seeing on the fitness Instagram? Um, And I got to say, not many. Because when I see people sharing myths, uh, (laughs) I tend to just unfollow them. (laughs) Um, But uh, a a general theme that I've been seeing for the last couple of months, uh, not so much on Instagram. This is more like in Facebook groups. Uh, but you know, th- this is something I've been seeing for a long, long time. The whole, uh, the general concept of interconversion of fat tissue and muscle tissue where, you know, people say like, ah, oh, like I stopped working out cause my gym closed and all of my muscle turned into fat or like, oh, here's some, some cool workouts you can do to turn that fat you gained during quarantine into hard, lean muscle. Um, that's impossible. There, there's no uh, there's no way to, to physiologically interconvert adipose tissue and muscle tissue. Um, one one interesting little note, I suppose, is that uh, myocytes, like muscle cells and uh, adipose tissue cells, do actually derive from the same stem cell line, and uh, the the, the overall, uh, n- nutritional and hormonal milieu in your body is what determines whether a mesenchymal stem cell is going to differentiate into, uh, a, a myocyte or, a uh, adipocyte. So like, you know, in, in the, in the most basic, like it, at birth, <laughs> the, the, these cells have some degree of Uh, capacity to differentiate um and and like especially that's true like during fetal development but you know once you've got like a mature myocyte it's not turning into an adipocyte or vice versa um so yeah i I mean I, i understand where that idea comes from i think one of the reasons like this is something that that my parents talked about uh with me when i got into lifting Um, they were like, oh man, you're, you're going to build all of this muscle. And then like, when you get older, it's just going to turn to fat. And I think, I think that idea originates from like (laughs) seeing professional athletes after they retire. And I, I think the explanation for that is like, oh, they used to play a sport professionally and work out all the time. Uh, and then they stopped playing the sport, their caloric or yeah, their caloric expenditure went down. They stopped training as much, but like, for the past two decades of their life they learned to eat like an athlete and they probably still are and so they are losing fat and gaining muscle or they're losing muscle and gaining fat but by different physiological processes uh and and vice versa i mean when people start training it's not uncommon at all to simultaneously lose some fat and gain some muscle but those again are are different physiological processes there's no interconversion between those tissues going on. I'm sure 99.8% of people listening to this podcast already knew that, but you know, that based on the fact that a lot of people who had previously been in the gym were out of the gym for a long time. And a lot of people who have recently been out of the gym for a long time are going back to the gym. I have seen a lot of muscle to fat interconversion discourse, uh, and yeah, that's that's a myth.
0: Yeah, I don't think I really qualify to have an opinion on this one. I, I currently follow precisely 11 accounts on Instagram, and they haven't been posting myths lately. <laughs> uh, but two of them are actually in this very building at this point in time. So congrats to both of you. I, I think your content's been terrific. Uh, no myths. So big stamp of approval there. Uh okay, uh moving on to play us out. I'm really excited about this to play us out segment uh, cuz I don't I don't want to steal your thunder. I want you to take it from here and, and just uh just do your thing with it.
1: Wait, didn't didn't you have something last time that we didn't get to? No. Oh. All right. You're up. Uh, the,
0: the stage is yours.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's do this. So, um <laughs> So I I recently joined a gym uh, near my house. Uh, I, I'm still a member of the powerlifting gym that I've been going to for a while, but you know, now that I'm losing some weight, I'm going to be getting weaker. Uh, if not now, eventually, eventually powerlifting training becomes somewhat demotivating. And, you know, I I just want to have some access to some machines, get a pump in, have a good time. Uh, so I joined another gym that I joined it purely for the machines, (laughs) uh, and when i signed up they said hey within the first month that you're a member you can get a complimentary fitness assessment and i was thinking like uh, i don't know i don't i don't really care uh, but then i got an email that said and you'll get a $10 gift card i was like okay that's that's enough of a carrot that i'll at least
0: check it out that's 8 months worth of multivitamins
1: yeah yeah um and and the thing is, like, I know how this goes. Like, I know that this isn't magnanimous. Uh, gyms make money. C- commercial gyms make money on personal training and members who don't show up. Um, that That is the, the business model. Um, and so, you know, they're trying to sell me on personal training. That's the only purpose of this. I knew it going in. Uh, so I was mostly just intrigued. I wanted to see, like, okay, what hard sell tactics is this gym using? I'm, I'm interested to see how this goes. So, uh, I show up for my complimentary fitness assessment and, um, we have the briefest conversation imaginable about what my goals are and what I want to accomplish. Um, so I said, you know, my, my main goal currently is I'm trying to lose some weight. Uh, it's going pretty well, uh, You know, I, at the time I was down 15 pounds from where I started recently and about 30 pounds from my peak. So, you know, trying to lose weight, but that's currently going pretty well on my own. Um, and as far as training goes, I've been in the gym for a long time, powerlifting for 15 years. Um, and you know, so I, I, was making it clear to them that I was going to be someone who was pretty, who would be pretty challenging to sell to. So I wanted to see if that would uh, induce them to uh, either sell harder or realize that I was a lost cause and back off. Uh, Definitely went with the former. Um, So, okay, very, very short conversation. Less than five minutes later, um, the, (laughs) the guy who was taking me through my fitness assessment asked if I'd ever worked out before. Again, after we'd exchanged maybe four sentences of discussion, one of which is saying I'd been powerlifting for 15 years. So clearly didn't listen at all. Uh, you know, he, he knew what he wanted to put me through. He had his sales script, one of which, like one of the questions was asking me if I'd ever worked out before. So already off to a very good start. Um, so let's see. Then then we talked about lifestyle. um, I said uh, I had a fairly sedentary job, but that I'm pretty active, Uh, typically walk 10 to 12,000 steps per day, typically either lift or play basketball most days of the week. Uh, And I also said that I currently had a broken wrist, so I couldn't grip any significant weight and also couldn't take any significant compressive force through my wrist. So that's, that's more information for him. Told him like, hey, look, I'm I'm fairly active. Can't do anything with my wrist. Those are two additional pieces of information for you. So we'll we'll circle back to that later. So uh, one of the first parts of the fitness assessment was going to get a 3D body scan, which was pretty cool. I don't know how much stock to put in it, but uh, basically just stood on a platform that turned around in a circle, and the. Um, like, I'm pretty sure it was just using an Xbox 360 console with the, like, little vision thing that it had built in. Um, but anyway, uh, did a 3D body scan, uh, the The printout comes back, uh, it said I was 26% body fat, uh, so he said, like, oh, you're 26% body fat, so uh, you probably want to lose some weight, don't you? I was like, dude, I already told you that fucking five minutes ago, um, so off to a very good start. He said, the device measured you, uh, or, de- or measured your, uh, basal metabolic rate at, uh, 2,344 calories. And I said, huh, measured. Interesting. How, how does it measure my BMR? He said, proprietary technology. <laughs> I said, In- interesting. <laughs> so, uh, obviously a body scan cannot measure BMR. Um, It's, I'm, I'm sure it's purely based on height, weight, body comp age. Uh, anyway, so I said, oh, proprietary technology. Interesting. Uh, and he said, okay, yeah, yeah. So based on this information, we can multiply your BMR by 1.2 to calculate your maintenance calories. I said, oh, interesting. So is it, uh, you know, is is that just a fixed number? It's, it's BMR times 1.2 for everyone to calculate maintenance calories. He said, yep. And I said, huh, interesting. So again, there, there are various multipliers based on activity levels. 1.2 assumes that someone's completely sedentary. So for me, that was very bad advice. I had told him ten to 12,000 steps per day, generally either lift or play basketball most days. My, the correct number for me is probably somewhere around 1.5, 1.6 and the multipliers go all the way up to about 1.9 for someone who's very active. So uh anyway, we're still less than 10 minutes into this complimentary session uh and it's it's not going too hot. Uh but, you know, it's fun, so I I stick with it. So um you know, now now that we've got my body comp, he wants to see if I can move well, so we go to do the FMS, the functional movement screen. Um and and I told him like You know, I, I basically wanted to get to the sales pitch to see how that would go. So I I tried to press fast forward. So I tipped my hand a little bit, like at at this point, the guy doesn't know what I do for a living. Um, So I kind of tipped my hand and implied that I know a fair bit about what he's doing. So I said, like, yeah, I've done the FMS, like, I've put a lot of people through the FMS. Here's what I'm going to score on everything. Like, let's just hurry up. He was like, Oh, no, no, let's do it anyways. (laughs) So uh, we we do the FMS. Uh, I learn for about the fourth time in my life that I'm incapable of performing a squat, which is always a fun and cool thing to learn. Uh, His diagnosis was that my hamstrings were too tight to squat. Again, not possible. Uh, Movement restrictions in the squat just cannot be caused by hamstring tightness unless they're so tight that you can't go through activities of daily living. So that that was a cool thing to learn. Um when we get to the push-up plank part of the FMS, I said, "I can't do that. I have a broken wrist. That's too much compressive force." And he said, "Are you sure you don't want to try just so we can get the full FMS score?" I said, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you know I, I think it was just because like he he had his scoring rubric for if you put someone through all of the FMS things like oh shit what do I do if someone doesn't do one part of this uh so it really tried to get me to to get in a push-up position with a broken wrist uh but I I stood firm I said no not gonna do that so anyway go through the FMS learn my hamstrings are too tight to squat my shoulders are too tight to bench. My hips are too tight to do a deadlift. Uh, and he tells me, and again, keep in mind, I've already told him I've been powerlifting for 15 years. He said, if you really want to get serious about this powerlifting thing, you may want a trainer to help you with your mobility. Uh, <laughs> and I said, I've, I've been competing for a decade and a half. Like I, I can do these things. And he was like, "Ah, oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> So it's, it's already completely off the rails at this point, uh, but we're most of the way through. So at this point he asks, uh, hey, uh, do you want me to put you through a free workout? Uh, Just so you can get an idea of how personal training here goes. And again, I know what's going on here. So the, the purpose of this, if you're signing up for a new gym and someone offers to push you through a free workout, it's twofold. One, it's a good sales tactic. You're rendering services for free. And so then the prospective client then feels some degree of indebtedness to you. So they'll be more likely to then pay for your services or at least like an additional workout or two because they're like, ah, like you gave me something for free. Like I, I feel uh, some degree of indebtedness. Uh, and then two, the other purpose for <laughs> for putting someone through a free workout like this is uh, you want to <laughs> intentionally just trash them and make them feel super out of shape so they'll feel like they need a trainer to get in shape um so uh you you know i I know that a high intensity interval circuit is coming that's not how i typically train i'm braced for the worst but i I know what to expect um so he he sets up the circuit for me uh and it was initially four exercises which was uh, a rowing machine a kettlebell squat a shoulder press and a deadlift Uh, if you've been keeping track to this point, this was, this was again, like a week after I broke my wrist. So I could row, that was a bit iffy. Like even just gripping the rowing thing was somewhat iffy, but I was like, okay, like whatever, I'm going to play ball because pretty much everything else was completely out. Like I couldn't grip a kettlebell to do kettlebell squats. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't hold much more than like I, I couldn't deal with more than about 10 pounds of compressive force for, uh, like dumbbell shoulder press. And I definitely couldn't grip any meaningful amount of weight for deadlifts. Um, so I, I offered to just do it like unilaterally. Like I can just do one arm deadlifts. I can do one arm overhead press. Um, and he was like, Oh no, no, you, you can just like of, not do those exercises. So So I ended up just doing a circuit of, uh, rowing 500 meters as fast as possible doing 30 bodyweight squats rowing 500 meters as fast as possible doing 30 bodyweight squats which like dude to be clear no matter how good of shape you're in that's gonna fucking trash you um and to be clear i was absolutely trashed at the end of it um (laughs) And so, uh, you know, he he's at this point, I think, feeling a little bit better about his chances to make a sell because I'm clearly completely beat at the end of this. Uh, he said, oh, oh, man, you look pretty beat. Do you want to come back over to the table and talk about training packages? Um, and I said, nah, man, like I, I need to get back to work. And he said, what sort of work do you do? And I said, I run a strength training education company (laughs) and you could just like see his face drop. He's like, God, I just wasted all of my time. And he said, Oh, uh, I'll see you around, I guess. (laughs) So, uh,
0: I mean, you tried to save him from that though.
1: I did. I tipped my hand with the whole FMS thing. Um, but yeah, he, he tried his best. That was never a sell he was going to make, but overall it was a very negative experience, but it's not done yet. Um, I thought that was the end of the story, but no, no, no. They had emailed me the results of my 3D body scan. So at, at the gym, all we talked about was uh, body fat percentage and therefore my my uh, measured basal metabolic rate. Uh, but when the 3D body scan was emailed to me, one, it's a cool thing to have because it's nightmare fuel. Like uh, you, the image you get looks like a putty monster from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers which is pretty cool. Uh made that my profile pic for a day. Um and then also at the bottom of the 3D body scan um there there was this like there there was a continuum with like risk level and body fat percentage and it said like ah 26% body fat uh that is a higher body fat percentage than at least 90% of uh males your age that's that's high risk um and, and just like v- very like in your face and alarmist like very high body fat percentage very like high risk for uh bad things happening down the line and like i have a decent grasp of normative data for body comp so i was like look 26 percent, that's higher than i want to be but I know for certain that's not above the 90th percentile for body fat percentage for men my age. Like, I knew that for certain. So I I looked up normative data, and it was like 70th percentile. Uh, no, no. So n- never mind. I, I confused myself with my notes. Um, so I... I knew that uh, obesity rate was like greater than 30%. And a 30 BMI is supposed to translate to about 30% body fat for men. So I knew that it had to be somewhere below the 70th percentile. So I looked up normative data and uh, 26% body fat for a male my age in America, that's 61st percentile. So higher than average, but not not like incredibly so it is 0.28 standard deviations from the mean uh 90th percentile would be 1.28 standard deviations from the mean so like even like not just the trainer but like the printout of body comp that they emailed me was trying to scaremonger me by an entire standard deviation which uh not great not great you you would assume that they actually load real normative data <laughs> into their body comp assessment. Um, so like overall, uh, I enjoyed this greatly. I thought it was very fun uh the whole the whole time, I was just thinking like, I'm doing this for podcast content. um and you know i I haven't been hard sold in a while, and I enjoy it because I just like seeing what people do. Um, like being hard sold is one of my favorite things. Cause I'm going to say no, like, I'm not going to give you money. Uh, but I just like seeing the tactics. I, I, I think it's a blast. Um, but this gave me, uh, it, it hammered home for me why people, why so many people do have bad associations with gyms and exercise and personal trainers, because, you know, I, I know what I know, like I have the amount of experience that I do going through that isn't going to make me feel bad. Um, Like I thought it was, (laughs) it was mildly annoying at worst and very funny at best. Uh, But, you know, were I not as experienced as I am and as just like physically confident as I am? I could see that being a very negative and mildly traumatic experience because if the whole
0: if you had even just the littlest bit of uh, insecurity, insecurity, any yeah. self-consciousness about being in a gym setting, that would have been a, a disaster.
1: Yeah, because the, the whole thing is designed to tell you that like you're out of shape, uh, your mobility sucks, your body comp sucks. Uh, oh, man, we only put you through a 30-minute workout and you're already this fucking tired, you lazy piece of shit. You need a personal trainer. Like, that. that's what the whole thing is designed to do. It's to give you pain points you didn't even know you had to convince you to sign up to get someone to address those pain points for you. Um, and it's it's not good. Like, I think it's fun. <laughs> Most people wouldn't. Uh if you're a personal trainer, don't do this. Um, the there are so many positive reasons that you can give people for exercising. Uh, I- exploiting fear and insecurity, and inducing extra insecurity to then sell your services—kind uh, of gross. Don't like you. You can you can make good money in this field in far more ethical ways.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, when you told me about this off the air, it was, um, you know, we we operate online and we're kind of, you know, in the evidence-based side of the fitness community. And I think sometimes hearing stories like this is really informative because you kind of forget what's going on out there, you know, outside of the the little tiny niche that, that is very, very research driven. And, you know, uh, yeah, I just, I, I kind of forgot that stuff like that happens in the fitness industry. Uh, I don't know why I forgot, but I did. I've just, I've been in a little (laughs) bubble, a little echo chamber, I guess. And yeah, it was just, sometimes you forget about this stuff, but it's, it's important to remember that a lot of people, that is their window into fitness. Like that is their one fitness interaction that they recall. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are not part of fitness or the fitness community, they, they say, oh, I just moved to a new area. Maybe I'll sign up for a gym. And that is their window into the entire world of what we do, uh, which is unfortunate. So uh, if you are a practitioner, you know, give people a better window into our little world, make people feel a little bit a little bit more welcome and just operate a little bit more ethically than that if mm-hmm. you can.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, that's uh that is my to play us out segment.
0: All right. Well, I, I hate to hear it. You know, I'm sorry that you're totally unable to squat, but <laughs> it's something that we can we can work on. Uh I almost forgot to mention bulksupplements.com. But I remembered in the 11th hour here, so that's going to be, that would have been a very uncomfortable conversation if I forgot to do that again. So one last reminder, uh, if you have any dietary supplement needs, you head over to BulkSupplements.com. You put in the code SBSPOD in all caps, saves you just (laughs) really astounding, huge amounts of money. Uh, I I don't understand how they make it work. It's a 5% discount. Uh, they're just hemorrhaging their profits, but Hey, capitalize on it, take them up on it. Um, okay. I think that does it for this episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another one. As always, thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So, before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.